Welcome to the Naked Ambition podcast, where we speak with the people who are making an impact in tech, innovation and leadership all around the world. I'm your host, Fiona Triaka. And this morning we are so excited uh, to have Kai Haley here, um, who is the Head of Design Relations uh, at Google in San Francisco. Um, and is also one of the founders of the Sprint Master Academy. So we have actually followed Kai's work for close to a year now um, and are super excited that you've been able to join us this morning to share some of your experiences, um, both in design at Google and within the design sprint world. So thank you so much for being on here. Thank you for having me. (laughs) I'm excited to be here. Cool. And thank you to all of our participants that are um, joining this morning as well. This is super fun to be doing this session live with you this morning. So first things first, before I even um, I do too much, talk too much about your bio, can you tell us a little bit um, about yourself, Kai? Tell us about your career and the role that, that you're doing now at Google. Absolutely. Um... I, uh, you know, as you mentioned, currently lead the design relations team um, at Google, and I've been doing uh, design advocacy um, for the design community outside of Google for about four and a half years now. Um, I am a UX designer by trade, um, and uh, prior to founding the design relations team, I worked on uh, the search ads product um, for three and a half years as an interaction designer. Um, there. So my journey is long and, uh, you know, not very straight as most of them are windy to get to Google. Um, But uh, I have a background in uh, graphic design, branding, communications, um, and uh, started my design career um, by founding my own design studio uh, Mm. a while back, um, uh, which was, you know, very uh, formational for me as a, you know, as a designer. Cool. And you had a, um, there was a bit of a pivotal moment early on in your career, wasn't there, where you were influenced um, by who was then one of the directors, I believe, at IDEO and you fell in love with design thinking. Can you tell us a little bit about that moment? I think you were in uni at the time. You know, yes, thank you for for (laughs) reminding me of that. Um, Yeah, I, um, while I was a visual designer at Yahoo, um, after I uh, closed my design studio, um, I uh, decided to get my master's degree at the California College of the Arts um, in San Francisco. I really wanted to develop my own design practice, my my process, creative process. And um, I uh, was very lucky to take a design methods class from uh, an IDEO uh, director, um, Aura Aslopis. Um, <laughs> and that was my first introduction to design methods um, and design thinking. Uh, back in 2007. Um, And uh, so for me, that was a really pivotal inspirational moment um, where I started to build more of my user-centered design practice Mm. because I had a background in branding and communications and visual design. Um, But, uh, you know, sort of that was a big gap for me in terms of, um, you know, really building the foundational understanding of how, how to uh, design, uh, solve problems, you know, for, for humans. Mm-hmm. Cool. Can you tell us a little bit about, uh, specifically about the role uh, of head of design relations? Because I understand that's something that you created uh, to engage more of Google's partners that weren't necessarily being brought into that design process. Can you tell us how that came about and, and the sorts of things that you're working on now? Um, yeah, so, uh, you know, Google has, um, had a developer relations team for a long time. Um, they're one of the, some of the the first companies to establish that role, that function. Um, but they didn't actually have a strong design relations practice or design advocacy. Um, and part of founding the team was, um, looking at how, you know, how can we bring the practice of design, um, you know, to the community, both to developers and um, you know other product development partners, you know product managers, um, and you know basically elevate the role of UX is how I like to describe it. You know within organizations, help them you know uh, 
unlock the power and potential of design mm -hmm. and user user centered design to improve their products. And um, for Google, that function, you know, engaging with the community, engaging with our partners and creators is really about helping them to build great products um, in our ecosystem. So to make awesome Android apps or, you know, Google Assistant experiences. Um, and, and part of that is really, you know, helping empower them to with the tools that have worked for us. Mm -hmm. um, so advocating for material design, you know, in the Android ecosystem and, um, you know, helping people uh, adopt design sprints and the design sprint methodology since we've had so much success with it mm -hmm. ourselves. So um, helping those partners uh, to, you know, to do the best work that they can do. Yeah, beautiful. Anything that you're working on at the moment in particular that you can share with us in the team there? You the know, these are, these are interesting <laughs> times. Yeah, exactly. These are very interesting times that we're mm -hmm. in right now. So there's a lot of um, uh, pivoting and reevaluating that's going on. So, mm -hmm. um, you know, we're in I more or less week eight of working from home, yeah. <laughs> as many, many companies are. Um, so we're still kind of in that uh, reevaluating, reimagining stage mm. um, and setting our priorities for, you know, what's going to be most helpful um, for the community as well as for Google. Um, so, uh, you know, in terms of, of big plans, there's not a lot of things to, to announce there yeah. where, you know, continuing to support the community, continuing to support our partners in the best way that we can, um, and also supporting Google as well to make sure that the company is still able to um, focus and be productive and, and you know, support in the ways that, that Google can support because there's a lot of great um, uh, efforts going on with, you know, by the company to, to um, support the, the COVID needs. Yeah. Of the community, but I imagine you know, your teams as well. Is there uh, what has that been like internally for teams at Google? And every single organisation is facing this, you know, in different ways, um, and has its own unique set of challenges, which uh, as unique as each organisation is. Obviously, what's what have been sort of some of the, I guess, learnings for you and your team, and ways that you've. Um, yeah, you managed to navigate the last few weeks. Yeah, I mean, we we basically have been looking at like how do we give people the tools and resources yeah. that they need to do their work, right? To drive the product outcomes that they need to drive on their uh, you know product teams. And the first thing that we did was just launch a weekly uh, knowledge sharing session mm -hmm. um, where we aggregated and pulled in um, you know, resources on running remote sprints or facilitating remotely, facilitating remote um, sessions. Um, and people have been running remote sprints for actually quite a while. So <laughs> thankfully, there was a lot of resources out yeah. there. Um, you know, we hadn't really leaned into that very much because working in person is always, op you know, the best case scenario. And we all love that. And we love what comes from, you know, connecting with people in person. But um, being able to be flexible and, um, you know, sort of adapt to the way that we work to this new environment um, and to do it uh, quickly and with a positive, you know, perspective um, mm -hmm. has been, you know, sort of our goal. We want, we want to support people and not stress the system, but, um, you know, give them what they need. So uh, a lot of what we were doing is looking at what's working um, and kind of surfacing that and creating opportunities for people to share with each other. Um, so we're not experts inside of Google by any means with the remote, uh, you know, design sprint uh, process. And there are a lot of folks outside of Google that are doing a really great job. Mm. So one of the other things that I did was um, bring in some external experts to share, um, you know, their learnings and their tools um, and to try to find what would be really helpful for people. Mm. It's been an absolute explosion, hasn't it, over the last few weeks of this, this whole remote design sprint. A few of the guys here are doing the virtual design sprint with probably some of the mm. Robert and the crew over there that you've been talking to, no doubt. Um, yeah. I think it's great to see. I mean, there's, yeah, always the silver lining, but some of those things being accelerated is definitely not a bad thing in any case. Can you tell me, while we're on the topic of design sprints, so you have now trained over 800 Googlers and Google partners in the design sprint methodology. 
um, and you're actually one of the founders of the Academy. Can you tell us a little bit about what happens inside the Academy? What does that involve? Um, yeah, so we have a couple different levels of training programs um, and we've been running them for about five years. Um, uh, I um, have a team of trainers, volunteers um, that are expert Google Sprint Masters um, who help to run the intro training and, um, you know, kind of get people uh, familiar with the methodology, start trying on facilitation um, skills. And then, uh, you know, once they've, they've run their first sprint, um, then they have, you know, they're added to our community and they um, have access to our advanced training programs, which we um, often bring in external experts for, um, really focused on building facilitation skills and, you know, expertise with, um, you know, product, uh, product development, problem solving, um, strategy, those kind of things. Mm -hmm. And I mean, at the Google Ventures was the beginning of Design Sprints. So I think the Design Sprints were born at Google years and years ago, and then obviously made quite famous by Jake Knapp and the Big Blue Book. Can you tell us a little bit about how Design Sprints have evolved in their usage internally, um, moving something that existed just within certain product teams or a part, I mean, you've been a big leader in that evolution. Can you tell us about that, the sort of the before and the now? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I mean, design sprints sort of, you know, were born at, mm -hmm. at Google, yeah. um, kind of at the, the beginning of um, both Google Ventures and Google X. Yeah. Um, and were really looked at as a way to kind of level up UX at, you know, at Google and help teams to work more cross-functionally. Um, so the methodology uh, you know, has evolved in different ways across different parts of the org. Um, and the Google Ventures specific um, uh, canon mm -hmm. uh, has been optimized for uh, working in the startup context, right? Working, working yeah. with small teams who um, are rapidly iterating. Mm -hmm. um, and inside of Google, it's, you know, it's a massive company with very different cultures across different different uh, product areas and so um as you know over the last uh you know five or six years that we've been teaching it um we've been looking for what are the commonalities across those different product teams and how do we um help uh people to learn a base methodology that they can adapt and then use mm -hmm. based on the culture or the say, decision-making models that, that their org uses or the, um, the type of products that they work on. So mm. if you work on a very uh, well-established product like search, um, you're going to apply the methodology a little bit differently uh, than if you're, um, you know, in a, in a new territory and doing more exploratory visioning type work. Um, then the methodology will be, your sprint will look really different. You'll design your sprint in a different way. Um, so, you know, it's a really adaptable, flexible framework mm -hmm. that we try to um, teach the Sprint Master or the facilitator uh, to understand how best to apply it and design their Sprint to meet the goals that they have. Yeah. Um, and so it's not really like a, a we, we don't have like a plug and play, right? Yeah, Where absolutely. You, you follow, yeah. we like to say no two Sprints are the same. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, that's, I mean, it has evolved over time and it takes on different forms, but ultimately it comes down to, um, you know, trying to provide the best tools to people um, <clears throat> to work collaboratively, cross-functionally and iteratively. Mm, yeah. Which takes time, you know, that knowing which tool for which context is something that no doubt that wouldn't be the, you know, what you would expect from your beginners that go through Spring Master Academy, I'm sure that like that's the the deep expertise for so that we get a, a full picture of this because I think a lot of our audience as well are um, some are keen sprinters, some have done a lot of them, some are quite new to this and might be trying to um, understand the value themselves so that then they're able to demonstrate some of that value in organisations. So in that context of thinking about a search sprint versus, you know, an area where it's future of. We don't know what's what's going to happen and, you know, it's imagining what could be. Can you talk to us a little bit about how 
how you might approach those differently, like what they might look like? Yeah. Um, oftentimes when you're, so they look, they'll look really different. So they'll, mm. they'll, um, you might, uh, you might do a lot of advanced research for mm. a sprint that's going to be more visioning oriented, or you might use it as a sort of a kicking off point for more exploratory work. Um, Whereas if you're doing more of an optimization sprint, which is what you might call um, something that's on a very, uh, you could still do a visioning sprint on a well-established product. I can't mm -hmm. say, you know, you always need to be thinking forward, yeah. um, but it might, the results of it might hit the ground in a different way. You might do user testing in a different way, mm -hmm. but when you're doing more of a um, optimization sprint, uh, you're looking at, uh, you know, what's the data that we have now? How can we understand what's working, what's not working, where the breakpoints are for the user, um, where the sort of opportunity areas are? I think I just said that. Um, and, and then making that actionable and, and, you know, problem solving against that, generating a hypothesis that then you're going to test with your users. Um, whereas when you're doing something that's more exploratory and visionary, um, you, you might be pushing the boundaries of the sprint process a little bit because, mm -hmm. um, you know, the foundation of the sprint process is, um, you know, let's develop a hypothesis based and informed uh, by research and data um, mm -hmm. that we then go and test very quickly with users. So we don't invest in something without knowing that it's actually solving the right problem for the mm -hmm. right user. Um, whereas, so that's where the visioning, um, and sometimes the like, you know, more like moonshot type sprints um, end up being more, uh, it's more of a long view, right? Where, you know, you're not going to hit the ground at the end of, you know, your three or four days and start building a prototype because mm -hmm. you're thinking about something like, what does the world look like in five years from now? Um, and you're creating more of a narrative or a video or something that's going to paint mm -hmm. that picture of what, what, uh, what the problem is that you people might be experiencing or what the state of life will be like. And then how is this product going to, you know, fit into people's lives or enhance and um, improve people's lives in a world that looks a little different than what we look like today. Um, that's kind of the, the, the far out version. A lot of times we'll do like two year visioning sprints, which mm -hmm. is really about, um, you know, aligning the team on what that core value proposition is for the product. Um, and that you can do that in a shorter session too. So there's different ways of, of looking at how do you use um, these, uh, the time together, right? Because mm. it's all about collaboration and cross-functional um, activities, so. Mm. I remember seeing you speak about the Moonshot Sprints and I was so excited when you spoke about that, I almost jumped out of my seat because it was something that, you know, we'd been throwing around and playing with and to hear that it's a done thing to actually think about the visioning because, reputation, the reputation of sprints is so much still around, you know, product development, de-risking experiments and these sorts of things, and also in that UX realm. So thinking mm -hmm. about those, the optimization sprint where you might include your UX, so your marketer, um, maybe product team. When you're doing the moonshot sprints, what's the configuration of people? How do you think differently about the people that potentially need to be involved in those? And do you? Well, I mean, I think there's, a, there's probably different definitions for it. So um, I, I would be very curious to, to hear from other folks um, who might embrace that term for the mm. way that they're, uh, you know, using the methodology. Um, there have been a couple of ways that I've seen it done. When you look at sort of the origin of the, the, the process coming from Google X, mm. um, a lot of what the work that they were doing were moonshots. So it was, um, you know, starting with maybe a, a really radical idea mm -hmm. and then um, rapidly testing and iterating on parts of it so that you could make progress um, in, a, in a meaningful way towards, you know, how, how could this technology be applied or like, for example, with Google Glass or, um, uh, Oh gosh, the, the the balloons, or you know, mm -hmm. there's uh, Project Loon, right? Where yes. um, you know the the sprint is being used to solve specific parts of it. Mm. Um, the you know the overall idea is a moonshot, um, but the other context and definition where I 
I found it to be really inspirational is when you're taking on something that um, might be relatively new for a team, right? So taking, or not new is not the right word. It's not their everyday project where like, you know, every day I'm, I'm solving this, this problem on this one product, but taking time out for a week to explore something that, um, that could be a risk to your mm. point about de-risking something that you may not normally invest time in, but like you can start to push on and give some form to some definition. Um, you know, what could this product offering be? Who might we solve it? You know, who might be the audience? Um, and so the moonshot is in, we haven't resourced it. <laughs> we haven't decided this is actually an area that we're going to invest in and, and build out as a product, but let's explore what that might look like. Um, and, uh, and so parts of Google, there's a team at Google that does these annual sprint weeks and they'll use that time to kind of try out something. So uh, explore what might this vertical look like? What might this solution look like? And a moonshot sounds really exciting and, and like, oh, that will be really fun. But sometimes it's even things like, you know, around, you know, ad settings or something, right? That doesn't sound very, very sexy, but because it's not, um, uh, it's not on your, your roadmap. It's not, a, you know, maybe a, a even a approved project yet. Um, it's a time period that you can explore, you know, yeah. something that might add value or innovate, you know, and really mm. push the boundaries. Yeah. Is that organization wide that, that one week explosion? Cause not, I remember it used to be quite public that you had 20% 20% of your time could be spent on hacking something that was new or innovation. Is that still a thing? Um, it's not across the whole company. There mm. are, uh, there is one org and we've got videos out there. Um, yeah. They still do it and they've been doing it for a long time. And um, that was uh, sort of the impetus for starting the Academy was to train a bunch of sprint masters for our first sprint week because mm. we had 150 people all sprinting <clears throat> together. Um, some of them on, you know, very specific resourced products, but mm. some in these areas that Google hadn't probably, you know, hadn't even gone into yet. Mm. Um, so it's not company wide, um, but uh it would be great if it was. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I suppose that happens with growth. You've got to, there might be a few of those things that, that fall by the wayside. Um, is there, are there any kind of projects that you've been involved in? Because I know that you're, you're quite passionate about the ethics of design, about sustainable design, making sure that we're not just solving the right problem, but is the thing that we're actually designing good for the world? You know, are there any projects that, um, that you've worked on even in the past that you're really proud of that have kind of come out of, of using some of these methods that you could talk to us about? Um, you know, it's an interesting question. I was thinking about this. Um, the, I started a, a con, you know, a, a speaker series, the design is series mm -hmm. um, specifically around this topic because um, mostly from this place of I'm not an expert, right? And I'd love to hear from other people and let's start a dialogue with the community about um, what tools are there for designers and, and UXers to actually make responsible design decisions mm -hmm. and to influence their product teams to be ethical um, or to be prepared for what's coming in the future or to you know, influence the future. Um, uh, you know, as designers, we are, our purview is actually creating the future on a daily basis, yeah. even if we don't feel it or know it. So um, part of the impetus with that program uh, was to inspire um, each and every one of us as a creator to, to think about that role of what we're putting out into the world mm -hmm. and um, to knowledge share around how, um, you know, how, what are the ways that we can, you know, that we have available to us, mm -hmm. um, to, to, to make intentional choices. Um, so, you know, from that perspective, I'm very proud of that series because it was incredibly for me educational, um, and coming from that place of not being an expert, I learned so much from so many people. Um, and I look for those kind of opportunities where, um, you know, we, I can connect people and surface resources that will help people, mm. um, on, you know, on the ground, as I like to say, yeah. like, how does it hit your product development process? How does it hit your daily, um, you know, design process? And, um, you know, so much of that is hard as a, 
as a UX designer mm-hmm. um, because you you know you have a, a very specific task and a very tight timeline. Um, and so then, how do you stop your your team and say, "Hey, is this the right thing to do in the world?" Yeah. <laughs> you know, yes, profit's important, but you know, is this is this what we want? You know, what mm. we want to create in the world, and that's a very hard thing to do. Um, you know, as a as a designer, um, or even to be have the visibility to know that the decision you're making so is true. going to have these long term consequences. Yeah. Absolutely, because that's a big part of it as well. It's like not actually knowing the implications of what you're creating. Um, may have years down the track, which is what, and I think it's a really interesting point. The, I mean, this concept of your, you know, design is series for particularly for people at the beginning of your design career as well, where, you know, and it might be a gross generalization, but people, you know, you, you are more idealistic, I think as well about, you know, the change that you want to make in the world and the kind of impact that you can have, but then as well, it might coincide with a time where you don't have as much of a voice or you don't feel like you do to have that influence over the sorts of design decisions that are made or the direction of the company, the team, um, you know, and even your industry. So those things are so important. What could we do, yeah, do you think? I mean, things like that series is a great example. Like, what do you think is missing in the design community when it comes to sort of support or, or could there be more of when it comes to support of designers? Something like, you know, the Sprint Academy is an amazing example of that, 800 people and partners and people associated with Google. But what else do you think could be done or would you love to see? Um, well, I think channels or venues for meaningful dialogue Mm. are really hard, right? Because we have these one-way communications. um, Mm. And I think this is one of the things that we're struggling with right now, now that we, um, you know, can't convene in person. Um, You know, how do we make space for for meaningful dialogue? And um, a lot of times you gain, um, you, you gain something from, you know, being able to talk to people, go to a conference, like, you know, sort of process the ideas that were generated and um, debate them, right? Mm. Because a lot of it comes down to uh, when you share your perspective on something, um, you are, you know, you're able to expand that, right? Because I, I absorb something in one way, you absorb something in another way, we're mm. hearing the same thing, we share, we learn more um, as we have a dialogue or a debate about it, and maybe we disagree. Mm. And when it comes to something like ethics, um, it's incredibly uh, complex and there's lots of disagreements, right? Mm. Where, um, you know, our values start to I- inform, mm. um, you know, what we, those perspectives and, and the decisions that we make and what compromises we want to make in the world. So I guess the, that meaningful dialogue can be very hard to find mm. um, and a, a way to create um, a, a platform for it is one of those things that I struggle with. Sometimes we had a um, design is ethical actually was one of the, the sessions that we hosted um, with Jessica Helfand and we didn't do it as a, a speaker series. That one was mm. let's get together and have a conversation. And we had about 40 different people um, and Jessica moderated the conversation around uh, you know, the room. And I found that to be an incredibly meaningful way to develop and form our own perspectives and um, uh, you know, takeaways of what, what could help what could help us move our practice forward mm-hmm. um, as opposed to a one way, like, you know, presentation by a s- inspirational speaker, which has its yeah. own, its own place. And mm-hmm. we have lots of that. And I appreciate that, you know, transition of knowledge in that way, mm-hmm. but um, you know, ways in which we can actually debate together um, in a safe environment is uh, for the community is actually mechanically hard to figure out (laughs) it's pretty rare actually isn't it it's like most of the time it is that one-way conversation at conferences the speakers and then the audience but I think that's a cool idea can you talk to us about um any other big trends that you see coming so no doubt Kai you're on the edge of a few on the cutting edge of a few trends there at Google or is there anything that you think the audience should be looking out for related to COVID not related anything in this kind of yeah next new world that we're heading into well to build on that sort of 
question or topic of how do yes. we how do we create meaningful dialogue and how do we build connections between people. Um, I think it's really interesting to see what COVID is, how, co how this is pushing us to be more creative mm -hmm. in the way that we engage and connect with people. Um, and I'm very intrigued by things like, um, you know, people hosting uh, concerts in video games, like <laughs> Fort Fortnite and yeah. uh, Minecraft. And what might these gaming platforms have to offer us from a social perspective? Um, I haven't, you know, experienced it in terms of, um, you know, what does that experience actually look like? But um, I am very passionate about designing experiences for people mm -hmm. and um, figuring out ways that you can build that human connection um, and inspire people, you know, and create meaningful dialogue. But um, so for me, there's like, there's going to be something that's really beautiful that comes out of this where we have better ways to connect um, mm. with people who are far away. Um, and I, and I say that in a hopeful way, I'm not personally developing those though. I'm uh, you know, when you talk about plans and the things that I'm working on, I'm, I am exploring how do we create a community um, when we can't do it in person and yeah. what does that mean for people um, and how do we uh, create that, that, human connection when we're staring into a video screen <laughs> you know it's like yeah. the, the the science of this of what happens you know in our brains yeah. when we do this it's actually really different than if I was just sitting next to you um you yeah. know at a at a conference or mm -hmm. in a cafe um so I'm I'm really fascinated by that those trends in terms of how we're going to push the technology to mm -hmm. serve us better yeah yeah, it's such an interesting one. It's um, some conversations we've been having as well, just about, um, you know, working with teams and you're probably experiencing a similar thing. And no doubt some of our listeners are in trying to run sessions or run workshops where you're trying to engage with people in this environment. And it's just, you know, not, not being able to physically be there and actually meet people's eyes. It's, um, it does give you like a new appreciation for actually gen energy between you know, the actual physical presence of someone as well. But, um, and again, though, on the flip side, I completely agree. There is this beautiful connection that's going on um, for across the world. It's taken down a lot of barriers and definitely given, you know, ourselves and a lot of other people the, um, the impetus to reach out globally and to other groups. So that's cool. That's a cool collision of, um, you know, sustainable design, ethical design, and also that connection. So we'll watch this space for you. Um, so can you tell us what, what are some of the bad on the, that we've talked about sort of some of the, um, the best practices when it comes to sprints, when it comes to design and, and, you know, your role as an innovator really within Google, what are sort of some of, what's some of the bad advice or recommendations that you've, received in your work or things that are not true? That's a really hard one. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> um, I know we often remember the bad things and the broken experiences <laughs> um, more so than the positives, but I was really having trouble trying to remember bad advice that I've been given mm. um, or uh, things that haven't worked. Um, I just, I, you know, I couldn't come up with it because I've gotten such great advice in, yeah. in my life um, from incredibly smart people because I've been so lucky mm. uh, to work with such amazing people at Google um, that, I, you know, I just, I'm sorry, I just couldn't <laughs> land on anything that I was like, bad advice. Um, I'm, there's a whole wealth of it out there, I'm sure. Mm. Um, and I've certainly fallen flat on my face in a lot of ways throughout my career, which... Um, I think is a great learning moment. Um, yeah. And some of uh, my, my best learnings have come from my worst, most failed sprints. Mm. Um, and so, uh, you know, I always look back at like the, the sort of bias towards action, right? Like it's, it's always, um, uh, you know, just jump in there and try it and figure it out. And I, and I very much agree with that. Mm -hmm. um, because that's kind of how I've learned myself. Cause I'm one of those people I learn by doing. Mm. Um, and I, and we all learned through, through failure. So I think that, um, 
the, the worst advice and the worst thing that you can do is not learn from your failures, yeah. you know, and just sort of like sweep it under the rug and move on to mm. the next thing. But to actually do the painful work of looking at what you did wrong, mm. <laughs> um, which I even personally have trouble with, you know, where I'm just like, yeah, yeah, let's just pretend that. <laughs> But when you sit you down and actually, you know, say, okay, right, I won't do that again, mm -hmm. um, that informs your, you know, your next plan. Um, those, those are things I've, I've learned from other people where I've seen people do it really well. Mm -hmm. um, not, not wallowing in your failure, but, um, you know, really saying, okay, dust myself off, learn from it, and then share it with mm -hmm. other people, right? <clears throat> this, is, this is what I learned hopefully will help you. Um, and to make something good out of, out of that, um, you know, has been, has been really, I've seen that be super, super successful. Yeah. Have you got a story for us there? Is there an example of, of kind of one of those times where things have, haven't really worked out, whether it's specifically on a sprint and then those lessons that you learned? Um, I learned, I mean, I have more than one. Um, that's why I'm like, let's see, where do we start? Um, no, it's interesting because I do train a lot of people and I teach a lot of people and I find that, um, most of what I'm teaching them is based on my own, like, don't do that. Yeah. <laughs> I did it. It doesn't work. And this is why. Um, and so, uh, I, you know, recently was trying to come up with some super successful examples, you know, mm. with metrics and business value. Yeah. And I was like, Oh, I mostly have really great stories of, of, you know, what not to do. Mm. Um, so like particular specific ones, um, I would say my, my most uh, challenging sprint that I ran was um, one I run inside of Google. I've run them for a variety of product teams. So mm. while I was on the search team, I would go and help, you know, the Android team or, you know, the, the cloud team, mm. um, which was really fantastic way to get to build relationships and understand these other product areas. And that's kind of how our Sprint Master Academy works is you have an opportunity to go um, kind of like 20%, it's like a 20% time and help um, another product area. Um, and I did a sprint uh, for very early days and I, and I didn't, I didn't have my checklist of all the things that I should check in advance. Um, and I did a sprint for another team and um, you know, I organized everything and I did this big kickoff on the beginning and you know, we're just gonna create the safe space and connect everybody and do these icebreakers. And then two hours into it, like five new people showed up. <laughs> and I was like, I just created all the safe space and we did this icebreaker and, you know, and now you're, you're, you're messing with my mojo. Um, so it was like one of those, that was one of those moments. Um, and throughout that three day sprint, new people kept arriving mm -hmm. each day. Um, <laughs> the next day, half the people were gone and a new set of people. And, and I was like, I don't think you guys understand mm -hmm. what a sprint is. Um, and so that was one of my learning moments, which was like, be really, really clear, you know, with the organizers that you're working with about who the sprint participants are, that they're consistent throughout the whole sprint, you know, these kind of things that seem, well, of course, that's obvious, mm -hmm. but apparently it's not obvious to everybody. And so, you know, some of those things of like over communicating, um, and from, from that, I, I came up with a checklist that I used mm. in planning all of my sprints with other teams because I realized um, there was a lot of things that I, I hadn't over communicated about. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, it's really hard to run a new sprint with new people every day. Yeah. Such a good one. <laughs> and never assume because it's because it's so for so many people, it's, um, it's just like a workshop. You know, it's just, a, oh, I, I can come to day two or maybe I'll just drop in on day four and kind of see where everyone landed and then give my view and, yeah, beautiful. What about, um, it's kind of, it's become a pretty popular debate or something even, you know, we go back and forth on, but the, the not enough research, the too much research, that kind of like that beautiful when is enough enough before you go in depending on what you're doing and have you ever had that moment where you kind of get to day two or even the end of day one and it's like we got to stop we actually don't know enough about this customer or this scenario yeah you know um i've been asked that question before too have you ever cancelled the sprint like yeah. after the first day um i haven't because i have everyone's time so i'm like mm -hmm. let's pivot 
but I do have an example of a sprint where um, by the end of the first day, we pivoted who our target audience was, mm -hmm. right? So we were initially looking at new users. How do we engage new users, um, in, like streamline the onboarding, get them in faster so that we can get them, you know, completing transactions. And through the problem framing on the first day and the analysis, um, you know, looking actually at the revenue numbers, um, we came to the conclusion that we really needed to lean into high volume users, people mm. who were already experts in the product and that we, if we could supercharge them, we would actually generate a lot more revenue than focusing on onboarding these new novices. Um, and that was really interesting for, you know, realizing that we recruited mm. new users <laughs> to come for the user tests. And we were like, oh, well, okay. Um, yeah. But what we ended up doing was leaning into that and mm. um, developing prototypes and concepts. We tested some of them with the people that we had. Um, but then we also set up user tests for the following week. Um, so rather than say, like canceling the whole thing because mm. we'd set it up, you know, uh, targeting the wrong user, we just figured we'd get to the prototype. Yeah. Um, so then we'd have something that we could test because you could always bring more users in later. Mm -hmm. um, but I've had those kind of pivot moments where you realize um, you didn't do enough problem framing uh, before the sprint. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's a combination of research, but also really understanding what is the problem for that audience that you're trying to solve. Um, and a lot of times I've certainly been in the, we don't have enough user research. We don't know very much about these users. Um, I've been in that position before. Uh, I try to get in front of that. Yeah. Yeah. Let's learn every lesson every time. And you've said something really interesting yeah. as well is it's like, what you know, I'm, I'm going to keep going because I've got people's time because so frequently that's, that's the battle isn't it? It's even whether it's the five day or three day, or you're even doing something that's a bit more deconstructed. It's still, there's the right people in the room. That's, that's the biggest hurdle a lot of times. Yeah. yeah. The worst part is if you don't have the right people in the room. Yes. And that's the other risk that happens mm -hmm. is you realize um, uh, that, you, that you've, you've framed it, you've focused it mm -hmm. and you've invi invited the wrong people. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and then you don't have the stakeholders that can actually make the decision. And, mm -hmm. um, and so, yeah, that's what I'll say. If you have the right people in the room, then make mm -hmm. the best of it, pivot, do what you can with them. Mm -hmm. But I have cut a sprint short before when I realized mm -hmm. we didn't have the right people actually to that mm -hmm. point. Um, we were supposed to have some decision makers and stakeholders um, in a, in a visioning sprint, which, um, really needed their, their input. Um, they weren't able to make it. And so we scoped it down and cut it short and mm. really looked at like, what could we do with the people's time that we had, mm. um, to get something that would be valuable to take back to those stakeholders. Um, but we, we cut out user testing cause we realized, you know, we weren't going to make it that far without input. Mm. Yeah. Good call. It sounds like. Um, a little bit just back to you, I think, on a more personal level. Are there any, um, any favourite go-to books or podcasts or like where do you really go now um, to get your inspiration? What are some of your faves? Well, um, I am a really big fan of uh, Daniel Stillman, of course. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> he has a fantastic podcast, um, uh, Conversation Factory, yeah. um, and uh, I definitely, he's one of my go-tos um, when I'm like, what's Daniel interested in these days? Because <laughs> yeah. um, he's, he's always sort of forward thinking in, in mm -hmm. this space. Um, and I listen to him regularly. Um, You've been on that podcast, to, haven't you? You on that podcast? I, really? I was, yes. Very, yeah. very honored to be on that podcast. Yeah. Um, we'll link a, that. So a while back. Yep. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And he does a fantastic job. And I love his new book too. Mm. Um, good Talk. Yeah, cool. <laughs> which um, I've been reading. Um and I tend to ask people, what are you reading mm -hmm. to this point? Um, and then kind of follow down that, uh, that trail. And uh, the one I'm reading right now is called Culture Code, yes. which is all about, yeah, yeah how you, mm. uh, you know, create good culture. Um, so I, I tend to kind of follow other people's recommendations or, you know, ask people what they're reading. Um, 
and uh, kind of follow that trail based on mm-hmm. what I'm, what am I currently wrestling with? And right now I'm really looking at um, how do you create really strong cross-functional relationships mm-hmm. and what makes a really effective team um, from a culture perspective. Um, and like on the, I like to say again, on the ground, right? So mm-hmm. like when I start my meeting tomorrow morning, what are the things that I can do very tactically to improve the culture on my team? Um, because conceptually we all know what, a, or maybe we don't all know, but we, we have an idea of what, um, a, a high functioning team should look like, but how do we get there? So you true. Know? We know it when we feel it, but it's hard one to label. Yeah. Can you stay on that actually? Cause I think that's really interesting at the, um, what are your non-negotiables when it comes to culture or what are sort of some of the, the, the things that you always try to bring to a team? You've led a lot of teams, you've worked at a lot of organizations, you've led your own organization. What does that mean for you? Um, I think it's a really good question because I think it's evolving. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it all, it depends on the scale that you're working at, right? And the large team, um, you know, how you create that culture or that safe space, you know, at a hundred people is really different than how you do it at 10 people. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, within a big company, you are often these pods of smaller groups within larger groups. And so, um, you know, you, you have to look at what, what works, you know, within this, the, this, the domain that you have. Mm-hmm. Um, for me, it's about being able to give feedback and have open lines of communication, which I think is hard for everybody. So um, making space and time to check in with each other and um, make everyone feel included, which again, these are really hard things. I don't necessarily Mm. have the answer, but um, uh, one of the things that I I look for is how well are are people's relationships interpersonal relationships across the team. Um, so as a leader, when you're trying to create the space and opportunity for people to collaborate and work together, so it's not always interfacing with you. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that they feel comfortable with each other and they have um, sort of the structure to uh, to engage with each other um, in and also in a human and fun way. Um, and one of the things that I really value is humor, <laughs> um, which I think is kind of a funny thing to say because I, I actually hadn't really realized this till recently when um, I just noticed that uh, I have a tendency to recruit people who um, bring that hu- that sense of humor to the team to kind of liven it. And so creating that balance of personalities is really important um, yeah. and figuring out ways to find the humor in a situation, even when it maybe it's a very challenging situation. So um, yeah, for me, it's about being able to create that safe space and, um, you know, build the team within the larger org that you sit within, which you don't always have control over. Um, But then also trying to help and advocate for the, the leaders in the team to know if you have open communication and feedback channels Mm -hmm. and people want to hear the feedback, then you know there's an opportunity for growth and change. Um, and uh, I really, really value leaders that are flexible, that say, mm. let's try this out. If it does yeah. not work, it's okay. I don't know everything. I don't have all the answers. Yeah. That's a really important one. I think I mean, the humour one is, there's more to it than it just being about fun as well, isn't it? Because I imagine that, you know, that especially where you work, you're recruiting, you know, high achiever type A personalities, probably people who put a lot of pressure on themselves to perform. There are all of those sort of things in it. So it's, you know, there is, it's really important sometimes, you know, while for a lot of people, it's about the mission and what they're driving and, um, but at the same time, not to take ourselves too seriously. (laughs) Yeah. And at Google, we take ourselves really seriously. We don't have time for fun. Um, so that's the piece where I'm always like, yeah. let's just take a, you know, actually maybe we can quantify the value of fun to yeah. our productivity. Really? If we're, yeah. You know, if we're, if our heads 
nose to the grindstone all the time. Mm. Um, I mean, we, we do value it at Google and it's like the well-being is really, really an important thing that we look at. Um, but, uh, but I, I will say we do take ourselves pretty seriously. <laughs> You're doing a bit to change a bit of that. Cool. Okay. Final question for you, Kai, before we um, let you get back to your day. So what is your advice to everyone who is out there listening? So, uh, they would range from being organisational leaders, the kind of internal enterprise innovator or the entrepreneur, anyone who's starting out in this. What is your advice um, to those individuals about trying to drive change inside their organisations? Yeah, the way I always look at this is um, is that idea of an experimentation mindset. Um, and I'm in the process of designing small experiments right now as we're looking at you know, adapting to our, our new, new circumstances. So, you know, really em embracing the mindset of, I don't know the answer, but um, here's the problem that I'm trying to solve and let's try a few things towards solving it. So the getting started is really important and not being afraid mm -hmm. to get started um, and not being uh, so concerned with getting everything right and completed mm. before you start to make progress towards that solution. Um, you know, if you're starting from a really well-framed problem, then you're in great shape. Yeah. Um, and so a lot of times that's where I start with like, what is the problem we're solving and who is the user who's experiencing it? And mm. I don't always like the word user. Some people use the word customer. Sometimes I just use the word human. <laughs> what are the problems the humans have that you're trying to solve? <laughs> And then experiment and iterate and, and know that you're not going to get it right. And that's okay. Mm -hmm. um, and it, you know, that's, that's how I've seen things actually work really well um, in the past mm -hmm. and help you to, to move quickly rather than um, getting stalled or getting stuck in, um, you know, very lengthy cycles, um, trying to put something out into the world. Mm -hmm. I think always good advice in any conditions, but especially now the experimenter's mindset. So thank you so much yeah. for that. Um, thank you for joining us. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you today. Um, we're so grateful to have you on and um, we look forward to sharing this more broadly. So thank you to everybody as well that was able to join us live this morning. Um, and we will uh, be talking to you all again really soon. Have a beautiful day. Thank you so much for having me. It was such a pleasure. <laughs> Thanks, Kai. Chat soon. All right. Bye. Bye. Take care.